Hello, welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhern. Firstly, an announcement. I had intended with the next podcast in two weeks' time to proceed with this mini-series on the spiritual hero and continue with the development and history of the Christian church. However, important events have erupted onto the world stage that merit our immediate attention. At the start of this second series of podcasts one year ago, that is, Season 2, Episode 1, entitled The Quest Series, The Search for Vision in the Evolving Crisis of Our Times, the text that indicates its contents says, The Quest season about to begin will examine the great visionaries across the ages in order to seek vision for the crises of our times. These crises, which are termed the Eight Horsemen of the Apocalypse, are the conflict of ideas, the economic political, military, social, ecological and spiritual crises, as well as the alteration of human consciousness as it becomes fused with artificial intelligence. The human race stands at a crossroads or at a dead end. Just as individuals suffer wounds and traumas and need healing, so too with the collective and planetary dimensions. We search the world's wisdom traditions in order to heal the wounds of our age and seek meaning and direction in the evolving crises of the 21st century. That was the text. Now, in examining James Lovelock, for example, we are laying foundations for further podcasts on the ecological crisis. In exploring the Gnostics and in recent episodes Jesus Christ, we are laying further foundations to examine the spiritual crises of our own times. But the overall ambition of this series is to comprehend the crises emerging in the 21st century as multidimensional and systemic by which I mean as an interrelated, evolving, dynamic, global system. These are crises that cannot be understood in isolation, but in their totality. I argue that they are going to radically change the system we live in. The emerging disequilibriums are going to be of tremendous severity, especially since they operate together. It is possible, some say probable, that the economic crisis has now detonated with the coronavirus being the trigger, and this will subsequently explode with devastating impact on the world's stock markets, credit systems, banking structures, bond markets, sovereign debt structures, that is the money markets in general. Everyone can easily understand how a pandemic can reduce travel, employment and production, but far more difficult to grasp is how the policies of governments designed to remedy the impact of the 2008 credit collapse, especially quantitative easing, have created a vast inflated superstructure which will collapse, causing economic, political and social carnage, and which will accelerate the other crises lying in the wings. Whether the actual coronavirus is the trigger or not, the enormous fragility of this superstructure is now being exposed and sooner or later it will implode with devastating global consequences. So, in the next podcast, I will outline the nature of this greater financial crisis and will emerge as the faulty financial superstructure is rocked to its foundations. What starts as a health crisis will morph into first an economic crisis and then its most violent form, a financial crisis. Subsequently, the political and social impact will change the nature of the way we live. 
the tools that were used to deal with the global financial crisis of 2008 will be scarcely adequate to deal with the coming one, since these are the very instruments, especially quantitative easing, bank rescues and easy money of unprecedented proportions, that have actually precipitated the coming calamity. This could be one of our most important podcasts, so I encourage you to put it in your diary and send a link to all those whom you think will benefit. All being well, this podcast will be in two weeks' time on the 21st of March, 2020. For this episode, we continue our mini-series on the spiritual hero, with special reference to Jesus Christ, his changing image over time, and the rise of the Christian Church. The highly problematic containers for the origins of Christianity are firstly and clearly Judaism, but secondly the Roman Empire, since Judea and Palestine were part of it. The Jews were a severe problem within the Roman Empire and the Christians a problem within Judaism. Firstly, Christianity emerged from the womb of Judaism. Christ, or Christos in the first century Greek, translated from the Hebrew Moshak, means the Anointed One, or the Messiah, who was to be a human leader, descended from the line of King David and King Solomon, and who would rebuild the ancient temple in Jerusalem, restore the authority to rule over Israel to the descendants of King David, bring peace, justice and the rule of God to the Jews. This was an intensely political as well as religious image. This was what the apostles believed and many of Christ's reported sayings fit in this tradition. For example, from the New Testament, John chapter 2.18. On account of this, the Jews demanded, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do such things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up again. This temple took 46 years to build, the Jews replied, and you are going to raise it up in three days? On his crucifixion, Christ is taunted with this boast. Mark chapter 15, 29 says, And those who passed by heaped abuse on him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. The rebuilding of the temple is a metaphor for the Messianic age. Although the Christians have interpreted this, or inserted it, to signify the coming resurrection, which took three days. What Christ is probably referring to is his Messiah status, that he would rebuild the temple, and the reform of the Jewish religious and political state. This is what the Messiah was supposed to do. This double reference implies a double clash, first with the Jewish religious authorities and secondly with the Jewish state, which is now not just a client kingdom of Rome, but part of the Roman Empire. A client kingdom has a different legal status, since it has more independence and more of its own traditions, but being part of the Roman Empire involves much closer bond and much more obedience. The traumas of exile are burnt into the Jewish soul. The captivity and enslavement by the Egyptians in the 14th century before Christ, the exile into slavery by the Assyrians 
in the 8th century before Christ, and again by the Babylonians at the start of the 6th century before Christ. The latter two empires being located in modern-day Iraq. These events have been commemorated in very moving songs, rituals, the Jewish Passover, for example, poetry, music, and of course in the Jewish sacred writings, which tell the history and suffering of God's chosen people. These have become also part of the inheritance of Christianity and refer not just to a people in captivity, but to the soul in exile. Psalm 137 has the famous lines, By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? The psalm then urges never to forget. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. Less often quoted is the ending of this psalm, where elemental anger and desire for revenge of those who had been traumatised is expressed. Verse 8. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. These are frightening words when one considers the current hugely dangerous conflicts between the state of Israel and much of the Near East. I hope they are not prophetic, for we now have nuclear weapons, not stones. But they teach us that traumas of long ago live on in memory through song, ritual, poetry and music, and deeply influence the present, and can resurrect in warfare and revenge again and again. Another famous psalm, number 22, is about a person, perhaps King David, since many of the psalms are attributed to him, who cries to God to be saved from his enemies and then thanks God for rescuing him. I quote part of this psalm from the King James Version. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? and from the words of my roaring. Our fathers trusted in thee, and thou didst deliver them. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord, that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierce my hands and my feet. They part my garments among them, and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord.
Deliver my soul from the sword. Save me from the lion's mouth. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. A seed shall serve him, shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. It is possible, and it makes sense to me, that the original psalm in its early verses can be dated from the pre-exile period, that is, before the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 587, before Christ. The second or middle part, perhaps signifying the rescue of Israel, may have been added in the post-exile period. The last portion of the composition, on account of its more universal perspective, may date from the Hellenistic period, perhaps the late 4th century before Christ. In other words, this psalm, like others, may have been built up over time. As is clear in the New Testament, the apostles were anxious to locate Christ within the Jewish traditions that were familiar to them. Thus, Christ is compared to the prophets, or regarded as a prophet. But the New Testament is constructed in a way that stresses that Christ is greater than all the prophets. You may remember the last podcast, Who do you say that I am? Christ asks. And eventually Peter answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those who wrote, and no doubt rewrote, the New Testament, in the decades and the centuries after Christ, were intensely concerned to show that he was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, that he was the fulfilment of it. One senses that the resurrection stories, as we've noted, written long after Christ's death and probably not by the apostles, integrated their material with parts of the Judaic sacred writings that could be interpreted as now prophesying the crucifixion of Christ. Thus, as one example, Psalm 22, just quoted, is referred to extensively in the New Testament as prophesying Christ's crucifixion, which the Christian church, in its early centuries, is making central to their emerging religion. Verse 1 of the psalm begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And verse 7, They hurl insults, shaking their heads, are both quoted in Matthew and Mark's Gospel. Verse 8, he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him, quoted in Matthew's Gospel. And verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment, is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. I've given the exact references in the text preamble to this episode. The New Testament, especially the resurrection stories, are written so as to be in line with supposed ancient prophecies. And these ancient texts can also be translated so as to apparently prophesy the coming Christ and his crucifixion, supposedly one of Christ's defining characteristics. For example, the most telling phrase in the King James Version, which is perhaps the most famous Christian version of the Bible, quoted above, makes reference in Psalm 22 verse 17 to they pierced my feet and hands. In the Hebrew version of the Psalms, presumably more original than the Christian, the Ketavim of the Tanakh, 
excuse my pronunciation, I notice the crucial word piercing does not occur. The Hebrew text is placed on the right-hand side of the page and its translation into English on the left. At verse 17 of the psalm it reads, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, like a lion my hands and feet. The URL reference for this translation is again given in the textual preamble to this episode. Here we see the word piercing does not occur and the sentence has a rather different meaning. I am not a scholar of ancient Hebrew so I'm prepared to be corrected on this point. However, even if the word piercing, which obviously leads to the crucifixion image, even if it could be legitimately inferred from the original Hebrew text, crucifixion does not necessarily refer to or prophesy Christ. For crucifixions were employed by both the Assyrians and Babylonians, the very conquerors who took the Jews into exile in the 8th and 6th centuries before Christ. Much later, during and after Christ, as we all know, it was a penalty of the Roman state, and it was still used widely in the Near East hundreds of years after Christ. For example, Mani, the founder of the Manichaean Gnostic religion, and who believed he was preaching the real Christ, actually, and whose influence in the 3rd century was probably greater at that time than that of Christianity, was cruelly crucified by the Sasanian king Bahram, modern-day Iran. So it was used in the Near East for thousands of years. Allusions to crucifixion do not, therefore, uniquely refer to Christ. Again, we are in the very difficult territory of the additions to, or alterations, or development of, texts over large tracts of time. I've already given my views on the New Testament, how it came into being and was altered over time to fit the needs of the emerging Christianity. It should have come as no surprise to me, but it has, that the Old Testament, appropriated by the Christians as theirs, but which manifestly belonged to the Hebrews, later the Jews, might have also been tampered with or altered somewhat in translation as it passed to Greek and Latin, then later into the world's languages, through the hands of Christians who were determined to show that the Hebrew Bible, now to be called the Old Testament, led to Christ. Thus legitimacy of the Christian Church is doubly affirmed. Firstly, through God the Father who created the earth and had a unique relation to the chosen people through the prophets, who gave them through Moses the Ten Commandments, etc. And secondly, through Jesus Christ, the Son of this Father, who is now claimed to have been prophesied and foretold throughout the so-called Old Testament. So the transition to the New Testament is doubly affirmed and the hegemony of the Christian Church becomes doubly legitimised. That is difficult to resist. One is likely to be overwhelmed by the immensity and grandeur of it all. Once again, a visit to Chartres Cathedral will illustrate this perfectly, since by the new millennium after 1000 AD, the Catholic Church has built this mythology into the very structure of one of its greatest cathedrals. The integration of the Old and the New Testaments are magnificently demonstrated 
in its stained glass windows and statues. However, if you type into Wikipedia the search term Tree of Jesse, that's spelled J-E-S-S-E, you will see the many illustrations of this theme in manuscripts and stained glass window reproductions in the text, showing the line of descendants from King David, Jesse was his father, culminating in Christ. The justification of this comes from the book of Isaiah. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. It has been suggested that Christ has a changing image over time. The first image seems to be that of Holy Man, the cure of the sick, an exorcist of devils, the worker of miracles, and he who demonstrates the soul. The second image rapidly moves to that of a prophet, as in the line of Old Testament prophets, an elevation of his status. The third image is an even greater elevation to that of the chief prophet, the Messiah himself, the Anointed One, from the house of David, who is still a human being but has come to rebuild the temple and bring the Jewish religious authorities and the Jewish people back to their true God. This image and role is both religious and political. So far we are in the Jewish tradition. The fourth image steps outside of this Jewish framework and the Christian writers of the Gospels elevate Jesus to the Son of the Father, the Son of God, and he is the root to the Father who is in heaven. By now the Christians have their eye on the lands outside of Judea and their mission is to the peoples of the Roman Empire and perhaps even beyond. A universalist vision is to take hold of Christianity. But this comes next in our story. Let us move now to the second and very problematic container of Christianity and indeed of Judaism also, the Roman Empire. The Near East at the time of Christ was a cauldron of political and religious ferment which periodically and violently revolted against both the Roman overlords and their local rulers who were embedded with the Romans. The Messiah is both a religious and political deliverance, but those who lived at the time of Christ were in a situation every bit as dangerous and problematic as their forefathers had been under the pharaohs or the cruel and mighty kings of Assyria and Babylonia. As already explained in a previous podcast, the Romans eventually exploded in anger and recrimination against the Jewish state, actually only a few decades after the death of Christ, in the time of Tiberius, the emperor who followed Augustus. There erupted 70 brutal years of Jewish-Roman wars in the second half of the first century and the first half of the second century that were among the most severe of a Roman Empire that specialised in warfare and conquest. Firstly, an estimated 1.3 million Jews were killed as a result of the first Jewish revolt, 66 to 73 AD. The second Jewish revolt, 115 to 117 AD, led to the death of more than 200,000 Jews. And the third Jewish revolt, 132 to 136, resulted in the death of half a million Jewish soldiers, 
It is possible, therefore, that over two million Jews were killed by the Romans in this period. The Jewish people entered their longest, most violent, severe exile and never recovered until the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. Such slaughter is breathtaking and that a people should survive it with their traditions is awesome. The political container for the development of Christianity is the Roman Empire. One cannot possibly understand Christianity without referencing it continually with respect to the development, decline and the disappearance of this empire and the subsequent dark ages which Christianity survived and was shaped within. The dark ages were the result of the collapse of the Roman Empire. Christianity then emerges within the container of Judaism, which in turn is contained within the Roman Empire, like Russian dolls, except that these containers are about to shatter. The Judaic state is practically destroyed by the Roman Empire, but by this time the young bird, Christianity, has flown and is now nested within the Roman Empire, and even within Rome itself. Christianity's political home is no longer Judea, and its mission is no longer to the Jews, the chosen people of old. Its mission, initiated by Paul, is now to the Gentiles, that is, the peoples of the Roman Empire. This is where Christianity lives or dies. This is its new home. By the time Christianity begins its missionary journey within the Roman Empire, at the middle of the first century, there are, unbeknown to it, hundreds of years to go before that empire collapses. So although Rome destroys the Jewish state, its menace, constant wars and revolts, one of the seeds of Jewish civilization, which is distinct from the Roman Hellenic, has spread in the form of Christianity. There are two great sources of Western civilization. Firstly, the Greeks, who transmitted their culture through the Romans. Secondly, the Christian, with its roots in Judaism. The dynamism between these two great streams are to constitute the flow of Western civilization over the next 2,000 years up to the present, a subject that we shall follow closely in the podcast to come. However, our next podcast in two weeks' time is to interrupt our story and to fast forward 2,000 years to the present, where it will be argued we are at a crisis point in the civilization, a crossroads. The path we take will utterly define our future. I hope you can join me.